I was ready. Now I'm ready. <laughs> Welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarick of Merrick Law. I'm joined today by my co-host, Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hey, Evan, how are you doing? Hey, Heather. I'm doing great. I just moved last Saturday. I'm now officially Kim's neighbor, but I haven't let anyone come by and see it yet because there's still boxes everywhere. And while I was doing that move, I thought, my back started to hurt a little bit, but not like my lower back, kind of like I felt like a bruiser rib or something. I was like, oh, that's weird. But it didn't start to get better. And then you told me, oh, maybe you have a kidney stone. And I would probably do because now that I'm thinking about like it's I haven't got it checked out, but it's like it's not getting better. Like, so I'm just like drinking a lot of water and um, hoping it just kind of goes away. I talked to a friend who's, who works in the emergency at, at the, one of the hospitals here in town. And I was like, should I go to emergency? He's like, yeah, probably. Um, but he was, but, but then the, the real answer was no, because he's like, all we're going to do is throw Advil at you. And I'm like, well, I can do that at home. <laughs> I'd be a lot more comfortable. Yeah. I, thought- I feel like we need to run the disclaimer right now. Heather does not provide Zoom or in-person medical advice. <laughs> this is not a medical podcast. We are not giving medical advice. But drinking water is always good, I think, right? right. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, the pain isn't so intense that um, it's like a big problem. Like if it was really intense, I'd be like, okay, there's like something big in there. So I'm thinking it's probably something very little and my pain tolerance is so low that it's like not a big deal so Uh drinking water should just take care of it and maybe take some Advil once in a while so that's what I'm gonna do that's my plan sure sure it'll pass it'll pass literally Uh Uh um well we're also joined today by our very special guest Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory Kim's a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited Kim how are your kidneys doing today (laughs) <laughs> I'm so glad. Thank you first for having me on the program. And uh, second, I have something to add on the rip thing. So oh, I have, oh. we had a super spreader event at our office where everybody got COVID. Well, 12 people got COVID. I was one of them. And one of my colleagues had problems with her rib. And there's a thing called COVID rib, something like that, where you cough so much. <laughs> causes a rib problem. So oh. I'm wondering, Evan, have you had any coughing fits? No, no. And, so I had COVID and I did not, it did not hurt my ribs. It just was like a big man cold for me. So I was laid up in bed, but that was, you know, that was OG COVID as I think we probably already touched on. Mm. No, so no, no heavy coughing, just heavy lifting. And the thing, if it, if it was, if it was muscular, like I pulled a muscle or something or bruised a rib, then, um, yeah, it's just not, it's not consistent with that type of an injury. It would, it would have gone away by now or like, yeah, it would just be different. So I'm pretty confident in Heather's diagnosis. All right. Well, it's like, yeah, I can't help you with the treatment, but. <laughs> yeah, my, my friend said, maybe get my wife to punch me really hard. Maybe that would fix it. Oh, okay. Punch me in the stomach, but. All right. <laughs> chose to not try that. <laughs> Oh, all right. Well, again, we're not a medical podcast. Punching is not medical advice. (laughs) (laughs) Please do not rely on this to treat, diagnose any medical conditions. Um, All right. Today's guest, uh, I'm very excited to welcome. Guess who's back? Back again. 
Sandra's back, Sandra's back. We've got Sandra Landry back from MMP. <laughs> she is a licensed insolvency trustee, and she is here to talk to us about inflation, budgeting, how to manage it. We're very, very excited to welcome you, Sandra. How are you? I am fabulous, and that is the best intro I have ever had. Uh, so I'm glad that's taped, because uh, I'm going to use that. We're going to start playing it. You're our first repeat guest, I think. So this is really an exciting first for Access to Justice. Thank you for coming back. You bet. I love talking, I guess, about this stuff. (laughs) Yeah, we talked a lot about insolvency and what those options were and what that looked like. And uh, yeah, so we'll veer off a little bit today, which is, I think, good. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think like our starting point for this conversation is something that's like all over the news right now um, is inflation. So, you know, I think last week it was like we're at six percent and the basket of goods is going up and all that. So I think that's actually my first question for you is what is inflation? There's <laughs> a lot. Um and that's a tricky part. And I am hearing that, you know, there is an expectation that inflation is going to keep going up over the next little while. How long that's going to be, I don't know. I guess it depends on which economist you're you're listening to. But essentially, uh-huh. the cost of the way that we live is going to be different over the next little while. Everything costs more. Uh, and I think most of us see that in our everyday lives, whether it's the, the groceries that you buy, the gas that you buy. Um, to the accounting services that you're going to be provided, everything that exists is going to start costing more. Uh huh. Uh huh. the beast. So how do you how do you fight it? And that's you know what we're going to talk about today. And ultimately, we can't change inflation, uh, at least not on our own level. Uh-huh. Uh, but really, what we want to do is figure out how do you fight the inflation how do you manage it well it is this high this isn't obviously the the highest it's been in history uh we know that it can get worse and if we think back in history we've we've seen certainly some numbers worse than where we're at um so i guess it's important for people to be prepared for what could come and if it doesn't come then we're over prepared and win-win yeah, I suppose if if uh, you provide us all with some tips today and we take them and we all save a little bit of extra money, that's that's okay too, right? <laughs> well, but that's kind of the problem with inflation, Heather, is that saving money generally doesn't fight the inflation and you're losing it. But I mean, I guess that's better than spending it all. Um, spending it all, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and it is. And, and it's funny because... In Alberta, we've talked about trying to rebuild the economy and bring down inflation and 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 buy more and 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 build up, and we need to do that. But but as inflation grows, it makes it more and more difficult to do that. And so sometimes we have to monitor our own household versus monitoring the good of the country and and hope that as a community we can fight it together and get through it versus everybody trying to buy out Amazon's warehouses uh, in order to help fight this inflation. <laughs> they got enough stuff that's being returned. We don't need to add to add to the volume. So um, 
I'm wondering, Sandra, if you can give us a little insight into the root cause of inflation. I mean, I've heard, I've heard people say things about, you know, it really started with the United States coming off the gold standard. That made, that was like a big, I mean, obviously not started. There's been inflation forever, even when people were using precious metals. In fact, you know, I think it goes back to people when they were using precious metals, then they start, well, let's add a little bit of non-precious. Let's add a little bit of lead to that silver coin. And then that's like the original, the OG inflation, but for our modern inflation, uh, people, I think people often point to that as being like, a an important starting point. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Can you talk to us a little bit about the root cause of inflation and what it, that's all about? Well, I don't know if I know the root. I know some pieces of it, but where all of this started is a bit of a question mark. And and obviously the pandemic hasn't done us any favors. Um, when the pandemic hit, a multitude of businesses are shut down. And when those businesses are shut down, that means there's a lot of employees who no longer are earning an income. When you stop earning an income, you stop spending money and putting that back into the economy. Uh, what we did see in some of the stats that came out is people started actually saving more. So even in our in our insolvency filings, we saw a huge reduction in insolvency filings because suddenly people stopped spending so much they weren't traveling. Um, they weren't only doing all of the things that were going to be costing them more money. They were a lot more careful. So there's less money that goes into the economy that way. And then, you know, we have the big stuff. It's the, the supply. When you have limited supply, you have uh, increases in prices, which increases the inflation. You've got the price of oil that's gone up. Um, obviously, you were seeing that at the pumps when there's same idea. There's, there's less oil going into the global economy. Well, the global economy is going to be impacted. And, then, and that has to impact us um, here on our local levels. There are obviously things that government puts in place that does things to provide a little bit of benefit for us. Um, but you can't stop the global impact of having that oil not in not in the economy. Um, so you've got these companies that have shut down or they've lost their employees and can no longer produce what they were. So if they can't produce, they can't provide that product, you, then you've got the lower supply, which increases usually the cost of the goods that are going to be supplied uh, because demand may not have a bigger demand, but you've got more demand on fewer products. So all of those pieces together change the inflation um, that we're looking at. And, and, you know, like I said, we can't, we can't change it on our local level, but we can do a few things to, to mitigate that. So number one, buy less. The less demand on a product, the less it's going to cost. Uh, and and yeah, easier said than done. I know that we're still gonna be buying things and that's the way the world works. But maybe we give more thought as to what we want to have purchased and maybe we're buying more local. So, you know, we're fortunate to have farmers markets and those sorts of things in most communities that we're in. And those are going to be uh, food. You, you're gonna have clothing in those places. You're gonna have 
handmade toys and household goods, um, if they don't have to ship it across the country, it's not going to cost as much. It's coming from Bob's shop on the south side of Edmonton to the market. Um, doesn't cost as much for Bob to get it there than it does for somebody in another part of the world to get a, a product to us. So, you know, you can do that. And then obviously get your budget under control and then implement some cost savings measures is kind of the, the best way for us to, to fight what's, what's out there. Um, you know, I'd love to talk more about the, the budgeting and the cost savings in more detail uh, if we could. Uh, budgeting's boring. Sandra, budgeting's boring. We don't want to do budgets. Yeah, just spend it all. <laughs> <laughs> budgeting is exciting. Let me tell you. Despite the complaints of my husband, it is a lot of fun. And you know why it's fun? Because when you budget and you budget really well and you invest your money, you watch it grow. And that is the part that's exciting. Oh, so it's not the actual budgeting. It's like the results of the budgeting. Well, can't I have the results of the budgeting without actually having any self-discipline? Um, yes, if you give somebody else control of all of your money. <laughs> oh, like a trustee or something? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully not a trustee because that means you're, you're too far gone. <laughs> um, but you know what? It really is. And budgeting can be a little bit boring and it's, it certainly can be tedious. Um, but ultimately, all it is, and, and Kim, you're going to appreciate it, it is a financial plan, right? And, and the idea of these financial plans is for you to figure out where you are going with your money and what you're going to be doing with it. You know, it's usually for a specific period of time, um, depending on how you want to set it up, whether it's monthly, biweekly, you do yearly, though I, I don't necessarily recommend doing a yearly budget. That's um, a bit vague, generally. Mm. Monthly is usually where I would uh, recommend. And, and you're really looking at those key expenses, setting them up on a monthly basis. The big stuff is like the rent and the utilities, and that's why you usually want to budget on a monthly basis, um, because those are generally once a month. And then really you're just going to break it down further into – how that person is paid. The majority of the people are, are often paid on a biweekly basis. So most months are going to be two paycheck months. Um, and you know, the point of budgeting initially is, you know, it's just to get a handle on what money comes in and what money goes out, where's it going, and then allow you to better decide if you're happy with the direction that it's going. And it also makes sure that where the money is going is going at the right time. So it is not the funnest part, especially at the beginning of a budget. Um, I mean, you're not wrong. It's not super fun. It's really about data collection. Mm -hmm. And all you're doing is gathering your information and going, okay, what is happening here? And how do I, how do I look at this in a non-judgmental way? And I think that's really key for for folks who are budgeting. Don't judge yourself for don't all of that for, mistakes, for decisions you've made. Yep. Don't assume somebody else is going to be there judging you. Nobody's looking over your shoulder and going, 
I can't believe you spent that much on this. Well, well, maybe your spouse is, but nobody other than anybody in, in your immediate family is really looking at your budget and saying, what were you thinking? This is your own personal set of numbers um, for you to take a look at. And, and ultimately what it comes down to is you can't make change if you don't know what it is. I've got so, a high-level high question for you, Sandra. It's kind yeah. of... A the beginning part, like doing, I find that once you get the, the numbers in the spreadsheet, but the budget itself is kind of interesting and fun. It's just hunting down the expenses. So yeah. it's finance 101 or accounting 101. There is, it's always brought up every single textbook out there. Who? And Kim's read pretty much all of them. <laughs> Who's should, should be paying for what? expenses in the household because if there's one person paying all of a certain type of expense it's easy to track down that information but if it's random and every money's going all over the place uh, that makes it a bit harder so in terms of what the textbooks say for uh, who should be paying what types of expenses do you guys have sort of an updated version of that at MNP or, or some advice to people out there because uh, there's usually I mean not not always but there's usually one person in the household that's making a bit more money than the other person yeah and I think that depends on the people that you talk to as far as what they are comfortable with uh, and it does change you know my best recommendation uh, on a personal level is that the household should probably be paying based on what their income level is so you can't have two people earning income, one make double what the other one was and still have 50-50 on the expenses. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel fair, uh, at least to me personally. It doesn't mean it doesn't feel right to somebody else. Um, but ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, if you are sharing expenses with somebody in your house, you should probably figure out what is fair uh, between the two of you. And in our house, we pay based on income. Uh, and so my budget maybe looks a little bit more complicated than than others' budgets because I like making sure that it's exact. Um, that's my personality, but you could probably do it with less complication. That's good uh, that you have attention to detail. I, I, I think that probably comes in quite handy in your profession. It does, actually. Uh, yeah. You know, I from the from a lawyer who does a lot of uh, family law and Heather, Heather, I'm sure can uh, contribute to this as well. I think whatever the best practice I would, could advise is to have that conversation that Sandra's talking about, whatever you decide is fine. As long as that conversation is being had about money and about finances and about the budget that yeah. people are on the, that you're on the same page, that's going to, that's going to keep you from having to come see me or Heather about the relationship breakdown Absolutely. somewhere. And so it must be true. Cause I, cause they said it, that, uh, <laughs> finances is the number one reason for divorce. Yep. Uh -huh. um, and you know what? It's one of the main reasons why people end up filing an insolvency is because of some sort of a separation and yeah. very, very regularly people end up on our, in our office and they don't have any idea what the other person makes as far as an income, some of them don't know how much money they have. They don't know if they have investments uh, and they've never had these conversations. And I've had to sit in my office and say, I think it's time you told your spouse 
that there's a writ on the property for a debt that you owe. Uh, I think they need to know. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah. so you do, you do have to have those conversations and figure out what's right for you. Yeah. Yeah. Because and if I'm, one person is out of money at the end of the month and the other person is uh, going on a cruise, they're probably not going to be a happy household. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I mean, even if there's separation, which is like, that's fine. As long as like everyone knows what's going on, if there's like open communication and you yep. like being separate so that, you know, one of you is more of a saver and the other one's more of a spender. And so you're like, Oh, I don't want to just put this money in that account. Cause then he's just going to spend it. Yep. So you keep that separation. That's of course going to be like a blessing to the relationship anyways, because you're the saver is going to help retain some, some resources that can come in handy when the spender doesn't have any left, but whatever it is, like, I think the key is having that conversation. Sorry, Heather, I knew I know you got you're dying to say something. No, I was just thinking about like I've been it seems like I've got sort of a rash of um, prenuptial and cohabitation agreements lately. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I echo what, what you've all said is there isn't a right way to do this, but it's important to have that conversation, um, I think, so that, you know, what's gonna happen going forward and like not just about who's gonna pay the netflix bill but kind of your mutual goals as well going forward what kind of life do you want to have in five years what kind of retired life do you want to have if you know one person's making um a lot of the money and doing a lot of the saving and the other one doesn't earn as much but you're keeping everything separate is that going to affect whether or not you're going to be able to travel a lot and like fulfill those goals as you get older, or one person's going to retire early and the other isn't, it's fine to keep them separated. But then how do you fulfill those mutual goals? If, <laughs> if only one has got the pot of gold to be able to retire early and, and those kinds of things. So, um, I think meeting with a financial planner or doing a budget and having these conversations early on is absolutely a really, really important thing to do. It is. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think sometimes people forget what the budget is as well. And it is, it's a start, it's a middle and it's an end. There's no, there's no, I set my budget and I'm all finished. It is, I've set my budget for now. I'm going to go back and look at it and see if it's working and then I'm going to change it. And then something else is going to change. You get a raise you have a child, you buy a boat, who knows, right? There's something else that changes in your budget. And so it is a constantly evolving, I don't know what to call it. it, it's constantly evolving and you really have to evolve with it and you have to change it regularly. Uh, I'd be shocked if I didn't review my own budget every two months uh, it's probably not often I go even that long without just, you know, checking on it and saying, okay, is it still doing what we're supposed to be doing with it? Do we have more money that I could put somewhere else? Um, and so I've spent a lot of time looking at budgets. And if I'm still looking at mine every couple of months, you should expect that most other people are looking at it just as often as I am. Kim, what's your experience with, uh, working with people on their budgets. Do you do much of that? 
So, so there's an organization out there, an association called FP Canada. And if you have a CFP credential, they give us guidelines in terms of what it looks like to work with people on a financial plan. So, so we, we generally, it's like a living, breathing thing. Like Sandra was mentioning, things are constantly changing. And it's something that, you know, as soon as you do it, it's, you know, out of date already. So you kind of have to keep up on these things. I would say most people wouldn't do a financial, like a true financial plan more than once a year, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be budgeting. So a budget is just one portion of a financial plan. It's the part that tells you typically what your expenses are and how much much money is coming in to pay for those expenses. And then there's a whole pile of other things that are involved in the financial plan to give people sort of that view from 35,000 feet. Am I doing okay? Like, am I on the right track? What should I be doing to meet my goals as Heather was alluding to? So I would say on the, on the planning side, we financial planners aren't not all of us are doing like budgets with our clients. Generally speaking, we are telling our clients and assigning homework and saying, we need these, these items here. We need to know what you're spending money on and get that back to us because that's one part that we need to fill in on your financial plan. Now, there are financial planners out there who will work through that budget with you. And I can tell you in the divorce arena, as CDFAs and CFDSs, we generally are almost always doing that budget with people because it's really important to get all those numbers down. And kind of what Sandra was saying before, like, it's not like everybody's doing budgets all the time when they should be. It's just like, this is the first time we're doing a budget and we don't even know what we spend money on. So in the divorce arena, we want to make sure that people know what their expenses are because they're gonna to have to project those expenses for their future life. So uh, I would say in the two buckets, if you're a financial advisor and a financial planner, generally you're kind of having your clients do that exercise on their own and kind of sifting through bank statements. But on the divorce side, I would say we're much more involved in actually nailing down that budget and making sure people have that pretty clear in their minds. So mm -hmm. that's kind of my, my take on budgets. I don't like doing budgeting with clients per se. I find it, um, you know, it takes a while and generally people don't have the information at their fingertips. So we're always sending them back to go find things and come back to it. So um, I think to Sandra's point, once you kind of get your spreadsheet lined up with the items, um, then it's just a matter of filling in those numbers every every couple months or whatever uh, to get the details down. And uh, yeah, finding those expenses initially is, is the hard part. Once those are down, budgeting is great. It's fun. That's my take. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess I've got a question for both of you or maybe all three of you. I, I've kind of done, I've done some family budgeting before and I've had like two different approaches recommended like in my Googling or whatever, right? One is sit down and write down everything that you spend money on um, and then you have a list of your expenses or the other approach is starting with how much money you have to spend and then bucketing that. So is there a better or one of those two ways better than the other? Or where would you recommend starting if a person wants to sit down and do a budget? They've never done it before. Yeah, I think it's, you know, in my, my humble opinion, uh, I think it's a little bit of both. So, you know, 
five big steps for me when I'm, when I'm thinking budgeting um, and we are, when we start budgeting, keep in mind, this is data gathering, not judging. This is where we start. It is number one, you've got to find out much money you have and when is it coming in? Um, two, you're looking at household expenses and I can certainly go into detail on some of this stuff. Number three, you're going to be looking at your variable and your discretionary spending. Number four, you're going to be looking at your debt payments. And number five, you're going to be looking at your savings. And all you're doing at this point is gathering information and using simple math. How much money comes in versus how much money is going out. And you should really at that very beginning stage be looking at actuals or your, your best guess on stuff. Uh, you don't have to go through and and calculate how many coffees you've you've purchased in the last three months. Uh, three months is usually a good period of time, though, if you are going to really monitor those expenses. Go about three months uh, to figure out what your normal spending is and write down the real numbers. So not, I think I spend $100 on lunch out every month. If you're going to spend $20 per meal and you eat out five days a week, you know your budget for $100 is not going to be viable. Right. So so it doesn't have to be exact, but it should be realistic, I guess, is, is the way that I'd start. Um, Kim, Evan, I don't know if you, you look at budgeting in a, in a different way. Yeah, like I don't budget professionally like you folks do. Uh, I just have been, but I do, I'm pretty serious about my personal budgeting and a couple things come to mind about it. Um, cause I like, even though we're kind of joking about it, I also think budgeting is very, well, I mean, maybe it's not the sexiest thing, but, it, but I, I get satisfaction out of it, but because number one, um, if you don't budget, you're not really being deliberate about what you're doing with your resources. You just kind of, it's just going wherever. Um, so budgeting allows you to be deliberate about it, to decide, okay, well, this is what I want to do with my, the resources I have available to me. And the second, second thing is when you're, or further to that is, um, you know, it allows you to focus on what are the, your biggest priorities. Like, obviously you have to, pay your bills and stuff. But um, if you're thinking deliberately about your finances and your financial future, then the budget is kind of that everyday tool that allows you to um, make your financial dreams into like a reality because you're being deliberate about choosing where that money goes. So yeah, I guess like I was thinking about that because of your question, Heather, of like, well, what do you start with the buckets or the what you actually spend money on. And, uh, I definitely started kind of with what I actually spend money on. And as I, I started university when I already had three children. So budgeting was important because we wouldn't actually have any food in the fridge, right? Things were tight for a lot of years. I went to, I did eight years of school and, uh, budgeting was vital. So, um, yeah. And so it's, I start with, if you're really low income or, or your expenses match your income, then, you know, you really have to be careful and you have to start with like, what are you spending your money on or what do you need to spend your money on? 
Um, but at the same time, once you have a little bit of discretionary income, well, then it's like, well, what do you want to spend your money on the lattes or, you know, creating some financial freedom for yourself so you can retire at some point in your life. And, you know, it's not necessarily one or the other. Sometimes you can have lattes and financial freedom. (laughs) A little bit of both. (laughs) But you need to budget in order to figure out whether you can have both. Yeah. Agreed. Um, you know, when I talk to, sorry, Kim, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I'll, I'll jump in after. Okay. I was just going to say, you know, when I talk to people about budgeting and we talk about, I always break it up in five steps because the, everything is very specific in those steps. And when we're talking about how much money is coming in and when is it coming in, that's a really important piece of information that you need to work into that budget. So if you are a bi-weekly wage earner, you're going to have most of your months at two checks. And then you're going to have a couple of months that are going to end up with three checks. So ideally, if you can budget for a two-check income every month, um, you then have that third check that you can deal with differently whenever you've, you've got that come up. And maybe that is your big savings piece or repairs piece or whatever that check ends up being you can allocate it differently um, but it allows you a little bit more forethought on how you're going to manage your budget monthly for the majority of the year Uh, bi-weekly income is a little bit tricky because that's not how our expenses generally work out and so big recommendation for anybody on that plan you know plan for two two checks a month and then it's a surprise when you get your three. Give yourself a bonus. Absolutely. Give yourself a bonus. And then step two is your household expenses. I always recommend doing this one next. This is the big and important items. It's the, the rent, the mortgage, the property taxes, the insurance, the car payments, utilities, security, um, you know, it's the things that are going to have a large impact if they're not paid. So impact could be losing your home if you don't pay your mortgage or an ability to get to work if you don't pay your vehicle payment. Um, there is limited ability usually to make changes on these amounts. So they're usually relatively fixed. Um, some caveats to that, of course, um, but they are essential that they get paid and they get paid on time. Um, and then when we talk about step three, that's kind of the variable and the discretionary stuff. So this part is a little bit trickier because they fluctuate monthly, yearly sometimes. Uh, that is going to include your groceries, your fuel, your sorry, your food, your fuel, uh, gifts, donations, grooming, toiletries, entertainments. You know, it could be whether you like to go to a lot of concerts or it's your children's allowances, it's your dining out. There is a bunch of stuff that sits in this variable and discretionary expense that we don't always think about um, in the same way. It could be your dental visits, your holiday gift giving. You might only do some of those once or twice a year, but you really should budget on a monthly basis um, for some of those uh, different expenses because you are going to end up having them. And if you don't save up for them, like your holiday gift giving, 
it's going to be more difficult and you're going to be more likely to rely on debt in order to make those payments. Um, we can talk about lowering some of that stuff later, but um, that's kind of the essence that's sitting in part uh, three. And then part four sits as the debt repayment. And we are just collecting info when you start this budget. Really, you just want to put down what your typical payment is or the minimum payment, if there is a minimum and you're not making that uh, on a general basis, whichever is greater. Um, the, the minimum payment is key for anybody with their budget that's a little bit out of control, uh, if they're not yet generally making that minimum payment. That one is really key because it's doing such damage to a person's credit report. And that has really serious impacts on the rest of the budget. It impacts um, interest rates. It impacts how your creditors like you and when you're renewing your mortgage and those sorts of things. And then ultimately savings. So savings is key and it's not just vacation money, though it, it should be, uh, but it could be, you know, savings for your repairs and maintenance for your house or your vehicles. It should be for your emergency account, for the unexpected loss of income or illness, um, RESPs for kids, retirement plans, because eventually we all do want to retire, um, a down payment on a house if that's the, um, the thing that somebody's working with. And it's really important that these savings are also built into that budget. Uh, because like Evan said, if you're not building it in, you are not going to be working towards that that end goal. The money gets frittered away and, and it never ends up getting saved. And Kim can attest to this. The sooner you get your money into a savings plan, the more money it's going to make. Interest on interest is a wonderful thing. Uh, so you want to invest as quickly as possible and as often as possible. Um, and any amount of money is what the savings goal is. And we talk more about savings later, but ultimately for building that budget piece, it's, you know, any amount of money, whether that's $20 a check, because that's what you've got right now, or it's that third biweekly check, or it's $500 a month. It really doesn't matter as long as something is starting because like anybody who saves, the more you save, the more you want to save because you like watching it grow. And that is the, I think the, the best part for, for us as individuals, we watch that grow and you go, wow, how much bigger can I get that? How much more can I save here? Uh, and then you start getting comfortable with having money uh, and having it saved. And ultimately, you know, like I said, it's, it's simple math. It's how much money do you have? Where are you going to send it? And what are you going to do with it next? So if you're cash positive, that's where you increase your savings. That's where you start prepaying um, and getting ahead of stuff. Uh, if it's cash negative, that's when you start reviewing, what do I do? What changes do I need to make? Um, you know, you also want to look at, are the payments being made at one point in the month? Should we adjust when those payments happen? So if you're paying your mortgage out of one check and now you have no money left for the next two weeks, you need to adjust that payment. And it's a little bit off topic, but when I 
when I think about budgeting, I always think that the, the point is to get it a little bit ahead. And this is how I manage my budget. So I always want to have enough money for the next month's expenses so that I am not putting money in when somebody needs it. I'm putting it in when I have it. And that's really key for especially those biweekly wage earners. So if they can get a month ahead and they just put the the amount of money that they've budgeted into that account, uh, put it in a month ahead, whenever it comes out is whenever it comes out, but at least they know that it's paid on time and they don't have to worry about when their check comes in. I've used an app before called YNAB or you need a budget and they use the concept of like, how old is your money today? Right. And I think it's like on that kind of idea, right? Like how long has your, (laughs) has your dollar sat there before it's had to cycle back out to pay something off? And it's, it's kind of an interesting concept, I guess. Right. So (laughs) is your money just dipping into your bank account or is it able to sit there for a little bit before it needs to be put to work? So that's kind of the idea when you say like try and get a month ahead, right? Is that you want that money to get a little older in your bank account, right? (laughs) Yeah. And you're right. That app is actually very good for, for talking about that. It's, and it always goes back to the idea. And I know a couple of people who use it and they said, every dollar needs a purpose. So what is your dollar's purpose? And I know it makes people uncomfortable, but I always say, you know, you should budget to zero. There should be zero dollars left at the end of your budget because it should have somewhere to go and you don't have to blow it all. It should be, you know, savings, investing and and doing all of these wonderful things to make your money, make money. Yeah. What are the categories can be dinner. It can be lunches. It can be a concert or (laughs) yeah. Gifts. Like you said, all those fun things in life. Right. But zero doesn't mean spending everything. It means uh, each dollar having a purpose, right? It's like absolutely. It's all going to job, yeah. Buying assets or or putting it in a savings account is budgeting. So, do you have any tips for best practices for like like how much should somebody have in a savings account in relation to their budget, for example, as a best practice versus that's you know? A hard, that's a hard question. I guess I have a few thoughts on that. Ultimately, as much as you can is a great answer. Um, When I'm thinking, because savings can be a multitude of things, and and I highly encourage people to save in different ways. Now, when I think emergency savings, so funds available, if something happens, there's a job loss, there's an illness, somebody's off for a while, or a family family member is off for a while, that's a different question you know, somebody should have, in my opinion, about three months worth of expenses saved. So go through the budget, figure out what are the, what are the required payments? And maybe you look at what's my minimum credit card payment for three months if something's going sideways versus what I normally pay um, and and do that amount. Uh, What would be great to have a better goal is probably six months of expenses uh, saved up as an emergency savings account. What would be nice to have is probably about a year. And it seems like an absurd amount of money when you think about it. You go, how am I going to save a year's worth of income for an emergency? But I can tell you 
halfway through the pandemic, people were in our offices and they had been living off of their savings for a year and were unable to find employment. And so these things really do happen. Um, and that's maybe an unrealistic goal for most people, but I think a good practical goal is probably about six months worth of expenses. And when we're looking at this, it's going to be something that is relatively liquid. So you might not have it in just a regular savings account, but maybe it's sitting in some other, Kim, you can explain, some other relatively liquid vehicle. We call it money market. There you go. So different, different monies has a different time horizon. So if you need monies potentially right away, well, some of your money would be invested in something very liquid, can still be invested, but but it's likely guaranteed. It's not going to go down. You'll just earn a little bit on it. And if money's pushed out a little bit further, well, then you can take a little bit more risk and maybe it's a tiny bit less liquid um, and it can serve another purpose. And then money further out, well, that's going to be invested in a, in a much different way. It's not going to be 100% guaranteed. It's, it's going to take on more risk and maybe be even less liquid. So. Yep. Yeah, and if you get to your six-month goals on that emergency savings, maybe it's not all in the same pot, but then you're also going to have, and you can you can separate this as much as you want, you can also have that repairs and maintenance savings. If you're a homeowner, you know that you're going to have repairs and maintenance. You're going to have a hot water tank that goes. You're going to have a furnace. You're going to have a roof. You're going to have other things that are going to happen. You need to have that money saved. Same thing with a vehicle. Uh, make sure that you've got some cash saved up so that if the brakes go on your vehicle, you're not dipping into your credit uh, in order to pay that off. And, and I'm not saying credit is ultimately a bad thing to use. Uh, it isn't. It's just making sure that you can cover that payment if you put it on a credit card uh, so that you're not paying interest over the next six months on something that you could have perhaps planned for. Uh, and I... You know, some, some folks have a hard time budgeting for all the things that they know are going to come, like a vacation. And sometimes they will adjust their budget because they think, I don't have enough money, so I'm not going to budget for a vacation. But then they still take the vacation anyway, um, but put it on a credit card uh, and then pay it off over the next six to eight months. Um, and, and that doesn't work, ideally. You know, save it up. Go ahead and book everything on a credit card, but then don't wait six to eight months before paying it off. Um, so you should budget all of the things that you know that you're going to want to do um, and just figure out what that's what your priority is. And I think that's the, the big thing is giving priority. Um, not everybody does this, but for me, I've always found it easy to have multiple bank accounts. And you're going to open up bank accounts online. It's easy. And, and generally the ones that you're going to save in, they don't have a lot of fees associated to them. Um, there is obviously some, some downfall because you're not going to earn a, a bunch of interest. But separating some of the really key things is sometimes really important. So I have a mortgage bank account. And the only thing that goes into that is my mortgage payment. And the only thing that comes out is my mortgage payment because that is one thing I never want to be laid on. I never want to have a mistake made. So there's always enough money in there to cover a couple of mortgage payments in case money doesn't go in there properly. 
Um, but I do know I've met folks who have had, you know, their lender on their vehicle accidentally take too many payments and then all of a sudden their mortgage payment bounces. And that is one of the things where I'm not willing to have that risk. My mortgage is really key that that is never late because it impacts the interest rate I'm going to get the next time. It's going to impact uh, the lender I'm going to be able to use, what they're going to be offering me, uh, those sorts of things. And I also separate out, you know, different savings. My repairs and maintenance and my emergency account is another bank account completely. My vacation is another account completely because I, I like having an idea of the goal I'm getting to each one of these places um, and not having the money commingled. Uh, and that, that app that you were talking about, Heather, that one will actually separate it within the app so that you don't have to have separate bank accounts, but my brain doesn't seem to work that way. I actually tried that app and I tried switching, um, but I couldn't get my brain to, to switch over. Um, but I found that having that visual was a lot easier for me to show what I'm going to have as far as a savings and what the money is going to be used for. Um, because if you can separate the stuff that's really key for you to have paid from the money that you're using every day, that is, it is ideal. Once that money's out and it's basically already spent and you don't have to think about it. And that's where all that savings is a lot easier. Once you've budgeted X number of dollars to go into savings every month, you move it. If you can ideally make stuff automatic, the, the easier you make it for yourself, the the better it's going to be here and you don't have to have you know all of your utilities have access to your bank accounts you don't necessarily want them to take the payment from your account but maybe you want to set up an automatic bill payment every month and so you can you can do that have it all automatic and whatever is left over is basically what you can spend and it seems like a <laughs> seems like a silly premise but right from being a student, I have always done this. Everything that was key got out of my everyday bank account into wherever it needed to go. And whatever is left is what I could spend as my entertainment, whatever you want to call that budget. And when it ran out of money, it meant I was done until the next time I put money in there. Um, because a student sometimes was going to be another four months. Well, that's exactly it. So you counted your dollars a lot quicker uh, being a student, I remember, yes, separating that. I was like, okay, this week you get this much money. This week you get this much money. But that's kind of the idea of that budget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so let's imagine someone sat down. They've put all their in their ins in one column, their outs in one column. They have gotten over the panic, shame, regret. Fear, worry, um, and they oh, see yeah. this, and they see a negative cash flow at the end. So the, they realize, you know, this is why my credit card balance is high because I've been spending more than I've been bringing in. Um, 
then you just panic and carry on and <laughs> right is that right <laughs> what, do you do? Yeah. what does a person do from there because that's what we're kind of talking about right like I guess that's part of what's in the news is that you know lots of us have had a budget that's probably been kind of just rolling along like usual and then suddenly we're going to the grocery store and like the grow the same cart of groceries is costing $75 more than it did a few months ago. And like you said, at the pump, you're, you're spending another 15 or $20. So now what do you do if you're finding that that number is just not balancing anymore? Where do we start making changes? In lots of places. Um, ultimately, it's going to be up to the individual, basically the direction they want to take that, but there are a bunch of areas that you can start taking a look at. And, and you know, Heather, we are expecting that same thing. The MNP does an Ipsos Read survey every quarter. And one of the things that we've been tracking over the last 17 or 18 quarters that we've been doing this is how close to people are of running out of money, being within $200 a month of not being able to make the ends meet. And what you see is that people are getting closer and closer and closer uh, to that level. And so so we are kind of expecting that the, the inflation is going to impact, especially those individuals who are very close already. Uh -huh. Let's talk about stuff that we can fix. Okay. Um, cost savings is really what you're gonna be focusing on if that cash budget is negative. So transportation, and this is a wide variety of options. Um, you know, you can consider switching to a lower cost vehicle uh, if what you have is no longer affordable. And now's it might just be more practical. Now's, a great, now's a great time to sell your car too. Well, I was gonna say, the used market is really looking for more vehicles. Yeah. You know, we've had experiences. My husband was approached in a drive-through with somebody wanting to buy his truck. He's been asked <laughs> uh -huh. three or four times from the dealership that he he goes to. They want to buy it. And they can make big money um, selling used vehicles. So, you know, if you've got a truck because you worked in construction and you no longer work in construction. Maybe now's the time to get rid of your truck and buy a little vehicle, um, something that's cheaper. Right. Cheaper on gas, cheaper insurance, right. no or smaller car payments. Yep. Lots okay. of those things. Uh, or buying it and not having a car payment. Uh, if you sell your truck, you might be able to buy a car for, for the cash you get. Uh, what about that rule in Alberta that each household is required to have a truck? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's during the pandemic. I think there's some leniency on that. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, I, know, I know, Heather, you guys have a pretty big truck. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. <The> requirement. <laughs> um, and it seems silly, but I, you know, you can even look at leasing versus buying. And, and there's a lot of legal questions that can come up from leasing versus buying because you don't really own that vehicle. You are practical terms. You're, you're renting this vehicle and you're either going to give it back or you're going to give them some money to, to, to keep it. But generally a lease payment is a lower payment than a finance payment. So sometimes if 
if you get into a lease, you can lower your monthly payment. You can save that additional money versus buying maybe the first time. And maybe if leasing long-term isn't your thing, you can lease for a couple of years and save some of that money every month. So again, some legal ramifications of doing that, um, but that is, uh, it is definitely an option. There is, you know, the ride transit program that's in Edmonton that provides access to transit by reducing financial barriers for families and individuals. Um, that is actually a partnership with the government of Alberta, and that's for both adults and youth monthly passes so they can get a subsidized rate on that for anybody that's lower income. Um, you can ride Shanks Pony. Absolutely. You can. And only if you take video. You know that term, right, Heather? No. No, you can tell by the look on my face. I'm like, <laughs> what is he talking about? Well, uh, your shanks are like your uh, your shins, that kind of stretch of your leg. From So the pony of your shank, the pony that your shank is riding is your feet. Yes. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Bicycles. There's lots of bicycle lanes, and but if you try and buy a bicycle right now, uh, you're going to need to sell your truck first <laughs> and get on a wait list and drive to. <laughs> That's not true. You can find them for free on Kijiji for sure. You can find bikes for free because we just got rid of a bunch of bikes for free, and people came and got them. There you go, and they're not stolen, so that's positive. Theoretically. I'm going to assume that, Evan. I can't think for sure. <laughs> you stole them, then we'd sell them, you know, at least for five bucks. Make it worth okay. the, you know, Cover the risk of getting caught. Yep. I know I have some friends, too, who get rid of their cars. They have one car, and they use those car share programs as well mm -hmm. um, when they need a vehicle just once in a while, right? Like, oh, we need to get out to Ikea, so we're going <laughs> to get the car share. But most days of the week, they don't need a vehicle, so... They just yep. don't own one anymore. And I that's a big cost savings. I think it is. I think the bottom line is um, like people, it's tempting to think that more money will solve your budget problems. It's very tempting because you're like, well, I just don't have enough. I just need more money. If I got more money, then I won't have any problems. But Easy. Biggie Small said, more money, more problems. That's right. And the reason, so I, the point is, if you take a critical look at your budget and your spending habits, what's gonna, what's really required is discipline and the ability to delay gratification. Like, like, like you were saying, people will go on the vacation and then pay for it for six to eight months. Yeah. What if you just switch that around? Yeah. And it's actually an exponential difference if you switch that around, because instead of paying 22% or 18% on your credit card of interest on those payments, if it's invested wisely, you can be making interest that beats inflation. So that's like, that's a significant difference. It's probably something like a, you know, I don't know. I don't know math, but it's a big difference. It is. And we talk a lot about this premise, um, even here at MNP and it, we talk about the right banana premise. And when you want to eat a banana and it's yellow, you're happy with it. But six months from now, that same banana isn't worth what you'll pay for it today. Same thing. That, the value of that vacation is not going to be the same 
six months after you uh -huh. you've already come back from it, you're still paying for it. You won't have the same joy of paying for it versus paying it ahead. You're a little bit excited. You're like, Oh, here's some more money. And I'm going to be able to do this with it now, or I'm going to be able to stay here with it now. Uh, it, it has a really emotional attachment to it. Yeah. Mm. You got to flip the script. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, a really good point. There's a lot of behavioral heuristics when it comes to money, like how, how people have biases, uh, when it, when it comes to what they spend money on, what their education is. And I think I get asked this quite a bit, Sandra, and I think people would probably be interested to see what you have to say, but what should parents be doing to educate kids about money early so that they build good behaviors, uh, into their adulthood? I think my biggest recommendation is to actually have conversations with kids and show them the money. And sometimes, sometimes people are uncomfortable having their kids know about what is happening with the money in the household because they don't want their kids to blab it to the cashier at the grocery store. And they always blab things at, to the cashier at the grocery store about anything that's happening in your life because that's what kids like to do. Hey, mom's broke. Right? <laughs> they will tell them anything. But uh, if you don't show your kids how much money is coming in and where that money is going out, they are never going to understand. So think back to credit cards. Credit cards are not old forms of money. Credit um, cards are a relatively new way to spend right and so that first generation that borrowed money with credit cards often got into trouble and sometimes still do because they don't have the the education that comes with it um but as we get more seasoned in the impacts of those high interest rates and what you're supposed to be doing with that, we get better at it. And it really is just education. And you can't expect your kids to grow up knowing what to do if you never show them. And if you are showing them that you spend willy-nilly until your bank account is empty, you can be rest assured they're going to learn that people spend willy-nilly until their bank accounts are empty or until somebody else has educated them uh, on how to how to do that. And I know that is coming into the curriculums now um, for schools, which is amazing to see. Um, but it really is, they are not going to understand if they don't have anybody showing them. So you got to go through your budget with your four-year-old like I do. That's such an interesting point, you know, and it kind of brings us back to the conversation we were having earlier where you have couples who are divorcing or separating and they don't have an idea of what's going on on the other side of the relationship, um, that there just is a discomfort for a lot of folks about talking about money, even within, within the nuclear family, within the household, um, so, uh, you know, uh, these are important conversations to have in public <laughs> and to share this information and to kind of, I guess, maybe get rid of some of the mystery or the embarrassment about it and just to start talking to people about money and what they do and <laughs> where they put it and how they manage it um, and get rid of some of that 
stigma. That's the word I was trying to think of. Like there's some stigma about talking about money. Yeah, I think there really is that stigma. And, and, and I think it probably comes from, um, especially if they're not really proud of the way that they're managing the money. And then why do you want to talk about it? You don't want to talk about it. And then it, and it's kind of like this, this um, downward spiral of like not being educated about how to handle money, making decisions, making poor decisions because they don't have the knowledge they need and then not wanting to talk about it. And then, you know, keeping it secret. Mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it really does. You have to start getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, uh, especially at the beginning of making a budget, because if, if you're not going to teach your kids, they're going to have to figure it out on their own or learn it from somewhere else. Uh, and maybe that's the solution. Maybe you say to your kids, I actually have no idea what I'm doing, but why don't we try and figure it out together? And then you'll know, and then we can work on this together. Kids are pretty clever. I've done a couple of presentations in both junior highs and high schools, and they are quite clever. They figure out these concepts pretty quick, uh, and were happy to correct me on anything that uh, that they thought could be done better. Uh, so not a bad thing. Get uncomfortable. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable about that. Kim, I'm curious. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm curious what Kim tells her parent clients about what to teach their kids about money and budgeting. Is it similar things, Kim? Yeah, well, I'm seeing a lot more. I'm having a lot more conversations with clients' kids. Like, and I'm not talking adult kids. I'm talking like junior high because kids are talking about this in the playground, stock trading and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we didn't talk about that in the eighties. We were skipping rope and, you know, trying not to rip our jeans because we get in trouble for it. So, so there's it's a different world out there. And Warren Buffett actually uh, paid a lot of money to come up with little videos for uh, parents to pass on to their kids, teaching investment concepts. And I think it's extremely important to... You, like it's extremely important to know how much information you should give to kids because there are mental health issues related to fi like financial concepts. Like people nowadays have a lot of uh, financial insecurities about money and it could be because the parents shared all their problems with money and then the kids got so scared about money and, and it, it caused some issues around how they view money in their own lives. So there's like, I think there is a balance in terms of how much to educate kids and what is adult, you know, an adult concept. It should be kind of kept <laughs> adults. But I think the earlier to Sandra's point, I think there's nothing wrong with teaching a four-year-old about an IOU. What is, what's an IOU? I mean, we, that's a concept we use in investing every single day. It's, it's a bond and we, it's the biggest trading um, piece of paper in the world. So teaching kids about simple concepts can actually, actually translate a lot better in the future. And they won't have those financial insecurities about money. They can talk about it. They can ask questions and it's not stupid. So I think, I think it's, incredibly important for parents to start to bring up concepts like interest and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like maybe don't tell the kids. So we're declaring bankruptcy. <laughs> what that means, you know, that that's an adult topic for sure. 
That's right. But I mean, like, there's so many resources out there. Um, like, I really like uh, Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And he's got a board game called Cash Flow. And that teaches about debt and assets and, and investing and interests and stuff. In a totally not, it's like, it's like an updated version of Monopoly, right? And like, that, for example, is a good place to uh, teach kids about money. One place. And there's so many. Like, Warren Buffett. You know, you know what? He's written books and people have written books about him. So if, I, I, my point is just, if you don't really know much about money or about investing or anything like that, like invest in yourself and take the time to learn about it. And there's tons of research uh, resources out there. And the internet, of course, is full of them. And instead of worrying about, oh, I'm going to pay this person $150 to take this course about whatever, is it a scam? Instead of worrying about that, how about just think of it like I'm going to invest myself by spending $150 on learning some new concept that, you know, maybe I can take something away from. It doesn't matter if this is like going to make me rich tomorrow. It won't. Nothing like that. That doesn't exist. But if there's things that you can learn about money, uh, finances, investing, you know, and you don't know anything, well, take some time to learn about it. I, I just think it's interesting because money is such a taboo topic. I mean, we don't talk about it that way, but it actually is quite taboo in our society. Like, like, um, and so then the people that win because of that are the banks. Those are the people that win. The credit card companies are the ones that win uh, because of that taboo status. Yep. Break the taboo. Absolutely. I'm with you. 100%. I, I, it's, it's so discouraging to have a couple walk in to your office and they don't have any idea how much money the other person makes, what they do with their money, if they're investing it, if they're not, if they've got writs against the household property, like so many things. Uh, and one of them is probably a more confident financial person but the other person is never going to learn from them if they don't have that conversation yeah i think i think sometimes people are looking for that silver bullet right they're looking for okay what's the answer what is that one singular answer for how i'm going to solve my financial problems or maybe there's not even financial problems but they just want to prepare for retirement they're really not sure how to start i mean besides talking to someone that's great like kim like i think there is no single answer um it it's start amassing knowledge. There's no one way to, um, to invest and gather wealth and prepare for retirement. There's tons of ways. Um, and you're only limited by your imagination. I don't know, Kim, would you rather work with someone who has no knowledge about finances and investing, or, uh, is it enjoyable to work with people that, that educate themselves about that world? The majority of people do not know where they're at, I would say. And to go back to Sandra's budget, like the importance of a budget, it tells a story and a really interesting story. So if you're up to speed on the budget and like a fine, like a, a very itemized budget, you're going to find out if you have enough insurance, you're going to find out to Heather's point earlier, if you're spending more money than what's coming in, you're going to find out where the majority of your money's being spent. Is it on home expenses? Is it on personal? Is it on transportation? Is it on insurance? Is it on the kids? 
kids. And you're going to be able to see when those expenses drop off because not all expenses are forever, right? So the, the idea of doing a budget really tells an interesting story. And I would say 90 5% of people who I start doing interactive financial planning with don't know what they have for insurance, don't know what they're chipping into their pensions. They just don't know it. And once they do know it, that anxiety disappears. Like they have anxiety to do the exercise of the budget, but once they get that done, the anxiety seems to just like float away because now they know where they're at and they know they're going to be okay because there's a plan in place. So I would say for most people listening, you're not, it's not uncommon to not know where you're at with things and not have a budget, but the value of doing it is absolutely massive because it takes away those fears um, and those anxieties that you probably live with every day and you don't even, you don't even really recognize it. Uh-huh. I think it's so funny that like, okay, so we're like, okay, we're going to talk about inflation. And then we've talked about budgeting, but I, I think that's, that's like, that's something that's in your control. It is. You can't control inflation. You mean like, like Sandra was saying, like, I'm going to buy, try to buy less. That might have an impact. Um, my dad had a saying that he liked to say is, you know, if you're doing something that seems futile, he's like, it's like trying to raise the level of the ocean by peeing in it. <laughs> That's basically what trying to deal with inflation is for each individual one of us. Right. But the one thing you can control is your budget. And are you um, spending less than you make and then paying yourself in the form of buying and buying assets and investments so that you can actually outpace inflation? Because that's the only thing you can do is control yourself and your own budget. Yeah. So I think that's, it's funny. I didn't see it going this way. I didn't think inflation, we're going to talk budgets. But, you know, I think it's good that it did. It's, yeah, it's super critical for each one of us and cutting those costs and figuring out how to cut those, you know, whether it is dealing with your home efficiencies, getting your utilities on a, a monthly payment so that they are equal. It's remembering what your parents taught you, turn down the heat put on a sweater, turn off the air conditioner, pull the blinds in the summer, open the blinds in the winter, right? It's, it's the big stuff, but then it's also the things that we're now looking at. So with all of us who have been at home lately, we want to, we want to do things. Renos are through the roof. RVs are through the roof. Um, you know, when you're doing your renos and replacements, because you are going to end up having to do them, start thinking about the impact of the inflation on those. So the low flush toilets, the high efficiency appliances, the trying to get something from a local supplier, um, because otherwise you're going to be waiting, uh, if I'm not mistaken, seven months for your new dishwasher. Uh -huh. um, right. So yeah, try, and, try and make those changes. The dishwasher's on a container ship that's stuck in the Suez Canal or, or the, the most recent one, it's sister ship stuck in the Chesapeake Bay or whatever. Out. Exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's where my dishwasher is at the very moment. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe in July I'll see it, they said. <laughs> that's crazy. Right? Yeah. And I, I guess there's good environmental reasons to do some of that too, right? You can go to like rehome or reuse centers and they have construction supplies, they have tiles, they have all sorts of stuff. Like there, there's stuff out there and ways to do those things that 
do arise in a way that is more cost efficient, mm-hmm. I guess, as well. So just got to dig a little bit, I guess, sometimes put the work in, right? <laughs> you do. And, yeah. you know, even going back to renos, it's remembering, like, what are you putting in your walls? So what kind of insulation are you mm-hmm. Are you going bare minimum? Are you going to put mm-hmm. foam in because you're going to save a ton of money assuming you're going to live in this property for the next 20 or 30 years you're going to be moving out in five you're not going to get your money back but you know some people are even looking at doing solar panels on their houses um, to start generating power Um, and then you just need to do the math as far as what is it going to cost us to put solar panels on our house and how much are we going to generate and can we sell it back to the grid uh, I've met a couple of people who have started doing that. Um, how awesome would it be to sell the power? I would love to be able to do that. Um, yeah. And just get a coal fireplace and set up a turbine. <laughs> don't there coal, you go. Put down coal power in this province so you can start it back up. There you go. Can do that. <laughs> you know, I always have some, the extra tips for, you know, things for food. And we talk about, the environmental impact of some of the decisions that we make. Heather, you just mentioned that. So you'll notice, I'm sure, over the last little while, you'll see notes in grocery stores and they're starting to donate a lot of their product to other places, whether it's food bank or otherwise. But there are a couple of low-cost food places in the city that you know most people are not aware of. It's the foodforgood.ca. That's low-cost food for low incomes. It's wecanfood.com, same thing. Uh, and that's usually like fresh food and um, meat products. Then you have places like, uh, or uh, products like the grocery apps, and they'll pull together information on sales that are happening uh, around you. So that's, um, what are they called? Flip app, flash food app, um, sale whale, I think is the other one. Um, but people can use that and then ultimately buy when it's on sale versus when it's regular price if you can. So if you shop regularly and you buy the stuff that's on sale versus the stuff that's regular price, you can really cut your grocery costs. And it, obviously not everybody has the ability to, to shop weekly, but if you could pick up a weekly sale and only buy stuff on, on sale, you can save a ton of money that way. Uh, it just takes more work. Yeah. And then I think something that makes me uncomfortable, but I highly recommend for those that are comfortable, is negotiation. And I am very non-confrontational and I don't like negotiating. And I have my husband negotiate on my vehicle when I get my new lease. But you can, like everything is negotiable. Talk to your hairstylist and get a deal. Your lawn care company, your furnace repair folks your your mortgage rates like go to a mortgage broker and talk to them about what you're looking for and get them to look out in the market you don't have to just accept what you've got and then i forget who's talking about i think kim you were talking about insurance so once you've done all of this work on your budget you should be taking a look at whether you're insured properly and then going to an insurance broker and see what's out there ask about discounts so I don't know if any of you have done it, but in this case I have like talk to the insurance provider and and see if there's discounts for a school you've attended for the place you work. You know, a lot of them will give you a discount when you get married or when you have kids 
or if you put safety features in your house, like an alarm system, uh, or here's a, a big one that I did over the pandemic is the vehicle mileage. So tell your insurance company if you're not driving as much to work because you have a reduced rate as a result of that. Um, so there's lots of the stuff that you can negotiate. And I think sometimes we forget that because it's not as prevalent in our communities here in Canada. We don't negotiate that much, but you'll go to other countries. People are always negotiating. Everything's negotiable. I so found, don't do that. It's so counter our Canadian culture. Like, right? I saw when I was in Kuwait, that is like, it's all barter there. Like that's nobody's asking you like the price, or, but it's just, I've, I'm so uncomfortable. I hate it so much. Yes. Dislike it so strongly that <laughs> going to buy anything in Kuwait. <laughs> yep. And well, there's I'm the Yeah. Just... Like, how much do you want? Oh, okay, that's fine. I'll give you that. I'm with, I'm with you. I'm in the same way. I'd rather just like just tell me. And yeah. Even with like, it's funny because you know part of Heather's and my job is negotiation. That's a really important part of. Family law, which, but our approach to negotiation is not the same as bartering. In fact, that's one of the things that um, true. my negotiation uh, mentor in law school, Mr. Brian Cash, is one of the things that he's, he stressed was you're not buying a car. It's not just, you know, you start high and then try to end up low. You're actually trying to do it reasonable. So I, I like that type of negotiation yes. far better than like, oh, you know, uh, you can give me, uh, this watch will cost a hundred dollars. And you're like, come on, that watch is worth $5. Like, well, let's call it 80, you know, no, I can't, I hate it. That's right. But if you can get comfortable, you can, you know, even the car one is always the hardest one, at least for me, but maybe you're not negotiating on price, but maybe you're negotiating on getting a couple of free oil changes or getting some winter tires thrown in, um, and bringing somebody along with you that likes negotiating more than you do. Uh, shop, shop yeah. your, they can call your husband. You can come. Call my husband. He loves negotiating. <laughs> it makes all of us uncomfortable, I can assure you. There's going to be, that. maybe that's a good job. <laughs> Is right? to be a car, a car sale negotiator. Yep. And we have this tendency, we want to, we want to fill the silence. And so when you're trying to negotiate, they say something and they don't agree. So you want to quickly say something. What I have learned is that if you just be quiet, they It'll will definitely down. come back with something else. But I can't. I just get uncomfortable and I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you know that about yourself and you have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, know that about yourself and bring along uh, somebody else if need be. I'll yeah, with my husband, he'll bring. I bet you Kim is a pretty, uh, a pretty good negotiator when it comes to buying a car. Well, I pay cash for my cars because I know what a, a crappy thing to spend your money on it is. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I just buy used cars. I I pay cash, and and that's that's the way I do it. I'm in with a briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> It is. I find like it's easy to negotiate for other people. Like if it, like I feel very comfortable being a negotiator uh, if I'm tagged along for something else for okay, my so own self. I'm like, 
I'm like, you, Sandra, like, I don't, I find it uncomfortable. Like I, I price all my services at the lowest possible because I don't want somebody to try and negotiate with me. I'm like, I'm giving you the lowest, like there's nowhere to go here. And that's <laughs> because I don't like that style of confrontation because it yeah. is, it, 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 it kind of takes a bite out of my integrity and I don't like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, if you're negotiating for other people, I, I do think that's easier for sure. You've got another option there. Kim will also negotiate your car purchase. Not her own. She's not her own. She's but not her own. <laughs> yep. Well, Sandra, this has been really good. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us your expertise. It's, you know, like I, I take my budget seriously and I thought about it a lot and I've looked at it and over the years, but it's, it's, it's great to get your perspective, someone who deals with it, not just for herself, but professionally as well. Yeah, I'm happy to have been able to come on and, and chat with you about it. I have mentioned to Heather previously how much I love talking about budgeting. So it works out well for me. Does MMP have a budget tool or like, you know, a spreadsheet that lists itemized things that people should look for in their bank statements? Do you guys have something to help people? We do. So we've got a couple of things that we use. So we have our internal software one that exists and it's, it comes out in PDF and it's just the basics. One of our counselors, her name is uh, Sarah Rogers. She does a lot of our counseling. She's actually created another one that's a little bit more user-friendly, I'll, I'll call it. And then we've also got our governing body who has, <clears throat> has one online that is um, linked to a bunch of different, uh, bunch of different things. Uh, so there's, there's a few out there. And then, of course, I use my own. But uh, yeah, if there's if there's ever a, a need, anybody's welcome to contact me. I'm happy to send them one or multiple templates that they can use. Well, even if you can send it to us, we can uh, post it in the sure. on the web. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd be happy to send that over. Uh -huh. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Heather, any any last hot shots? I mean, questions. <laughs> No, I don't think so. I, I this has been a, an interesting conversation, despite it being about budgeting. So thanks so much for coming, Sandra. <laughs> nothing else in this episode. You should have learned how budgeting is actually super cool and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and if you haven't learned that yet, call me. We'll talk about it some more. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. It's been it's been a blast. Thank you, Sandra. Any information in this video is general information only and is not nor is it intended to be legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. 
Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member of Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFE. Darkness of the dales dissipates, declines because of he who turned.